In the winter of 1959, student Yuri Yudin joined nine of his friends on an ambitious hiking expedition, an expedition that seemed to go wrong almost immediately. By January 28, 1959, he was too injured and too sick to continue. He said goodbye to the other hikers and never saw them alive again. On February 21, 1959, locals began organizing search parties, hoping to find the missing students. Within a week, the first bodies were discovered, and the rescue mission morphed into a crime scene investigation. When officials searched the students' campsite, they produced equipment and other items that Yuri didn't recognize like an emote or wide piece of clothing that wraps around the feet or legs for warmth. Yuri had never seen this emote before, but he'd seen others like it. They were commonly used by Soviet soldiers. However, nobody could say for certain if this emote was military issue because it conveniently went missing from the evidence room not long after Yuri identified it. And then there was the matter of the ice axe. Yuri recalled that the hikers brought one on the trip. Police found that singular ice axe and checked it into evidence. But official reports from March 3rd, 1959, said that two axes had been gathered and stored, meaning they'd collected an axe that didn't belong to the hikers, but still somehow ended up at the campsite where they died. And like the Amotke, the second ice axe could never be produced in future investigations. From 1959 on, Yuri Yudin maintained that his friends had been murdered. And given the way evidence tended to just disappear, he was certain that the killers were working for the military and that the Soviet government was covering up the real cause of their deaths. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on the Dyatlov Pass incident. On the night of February 1st, 1959, nine student hikers died under mysterious circumstances while camping in the Ural Mountains. The official report states they froze to death, but their injuries, including broken bones, internal bleeding, and radiation exposure, suggest something more nefarious occurred. 
Last week, we detailed the events leading up to their deaths using evidence found from the Dyatlov group's diaries and photographs. We also explored the police investigation and autopsy reports and the apparent cover-up that followed. This week, we'll dive deep into a few of the most prominent theories that attempt to explain what happened. Some people believe the hikers were killed in a Yeti attack or abducted by aliens. Others maintain that a confluence of rare weather phenomena drove the hikers from their tents and caused their odd injuries. Still others contend that the students stumbled upon a top-secret Russian military experiment and paid with their lives. Since the Dyatlov Pass incident, more than 70 theories have been put forth to try to explain what happened on the fatal night of February 1st, 1959. They range from a psilocybin mushroom-induced killing spree to a deadly run-in with police. Then there are the paranormal theories, like a Yeti found the campers and killed them. Stories and reports of Yeti-like creatures have appeared in multiple cultures all over the world, but in Russian folklore, the Yeti is something between an ape and a bear. It usually resembles a large, hairy hominid and can walk on two legs like a human. It's extremely strong and incredibly dangerous. While Yetis are generally considered to be creatures of legend, numerous explorers have sought to prove that they exist. In 1951, explorer Eric Shipton photographed a footprint on Mount Everest that he believed belonged to a Yeti. Then, in 1954, oil magnate Tom Slick trekked into the wilds with 500 porters and bloodhounds. He was determined to capture the elusive beast, but after six months, his team came up empty. But his failure only inspired more fervent explorations. In 2013, Oxford University's Brian Sykes put out a public call for hair, skin, dung, any samples that could be tested for DNA. Most of the tissue he received belonged to ordinary bears, dogs, and other animals, but two supposed Yeti samples couldn't be matched to any known living animal. Their closest relative was an ancient polar bear that went extinct nearly 40,000 years ago. In short, many still doubt that Yetis exist, but the evidence is piling up. The Dyatlov group might have come close to exposing the legendary beast as real, and they weren't even trying. The hikers thoroughly documented their journey with photos, and the last picture taken on Nikolai Thibault Brignol's camera shows an unidentified figure. The man-like subject is out of focus and underlit. A dark silhouette stark against snow-covered trees and ground. It appears to be lurching straight toward the camera. The tracks in the snow suggest that the nine students had already passed through the area, so the figure, be it man or beast, was following them, maybe even stalking them. The Yeti theory goes something like this. By the time the group captured the possible Yeti on the camera, they were far from the well-trafficked paths that other hikers often used. 
they'd taken a slight detour inland due to thin ice dams along the Ospia River. Then they got lost and wandered even further off course. Perhaps in the uncharted wilds of the Urals, they stumbled into a Yeti habitat. Of course, because the existence of Yetis has never been confirmed, there's also no scientific consensus on their behavior or attack methods. We can't say for certain whether such a creature would have stalked the campers all day and then struck under the cover of darkness. It might have sniffed at the campsite, then bellowed a deafening roar that terrified the students. It began pawing at the tent until they cut away the other side to escape. In the heat of the moment, nobody would have stopped to grab boots or jackets. This proved to be a deadly mistake because the Yeti was larger and stronger than the students. It had evolved in the Ural's snowy slopes and wouldn't have slipped in the melted slush around the campsite. It might have swiped with massive paws or slashed with razor-sharp claws. A slap to Rustam Slobodian's head would have shattered his skull. A snap of powerful jaws and Yuri Doroshenko's shoulder was ripped open. Igor Dyatlov might have tried to fight off the beast, tearing his knuckles to shreds before he fell dead from his injuries. The Yeti would have tracked down those who initially escaped to a cave and killed them too before disappearing into the snow. But even if we accept the existence of the Yeti, there are still several sticking points in this theory. Even a large and powerful animal couldn't inflict all of the damage the hikers experienced. When their bodies were autopsied, the baffled investigators compared the extent of their injuries to being hit by a car. If the damage was consistent with claw marks or bites, the doctors likely would have attributed the deaths to an animal attack. But that was never ventured as a possible cause of death. Furthermore, a Yeti attack couldn't account for Ludmila Dubinina or Alexander Kolevatov, whose clothing was radioactive. It's impossible to say how much nuclear energy they were exposed to before their deaths because their bodies were found in a stream. Running water can remove radioactive particles. But even after 15 days in the river, Dubinina's and Kolevatov's clothes were more radioactive than a normal person. They were even more radioactive than people who work with radioactive substances professionally, including scientists who build nuclear bombs. Something afflicted these hikers with a massive dose of radiation before they died, and no part of the Yeti myth implies it can produce nuclear power. So where did the radiation come from? For argument's sake, let's say Yetis can emit it. After all, all energy, even light and heat, is a form of radiation, and most isn't harmful. All warm-blooded animals produce heat, and some bioluminescent species emit light. 
Perhaps yetis have some unique adaptation to the wilds of the Urals, which makes them emit radiation. Since we've never discovered living yetis, we can't rule out the possibility. But there's also no evidence to support this theory. The unidentified yeti hair samples from 2013 were not radioactive. No supposed yeti footprints have been documented as radioactive either. And the whole concept of radioactive abominable snowmen feels very unlikely. Speaking of footprints, there were only nine sets of footprints found near the Dyatlov Pass, corresponding to the nine dead hikers. There were no tracks from other creatures, particularly not from a massive man-bear-ape hybrid. It's suspicious that a yeti could have attacked without leaving any traces in the snow. The photograph of the supposed yeti, too, is questionable. First off, the figure isn't exactly consistent with descriptions of what a yeti is supposed to look like. It doesn't appear tall, the arms are skinny, and in a previous photo on the same roll, we see another person wearing clothing that resembles the blurred image of the supposed yeti. It's very possible this is just a man in a coat, one of the hikers from a distance. So if a yeti doesn't fully solve this case, then perhaps we must look to another, even more otherworldly explanation. UFOs. These craft have intrigued, inspired, and instilled fear worldwide. The night the Dyatlov group died, multiple witnesses reported glowing and pulsating balls of light in the sky. Some of the last photographs ever taken by the team corroborate the orb-in-the-sky stories, as do interviews with Manzi locals who interpreted the bright lights as a bad omen. And it seems they were correct. Something terrible did happen that night. We can't say for sure why visitors from outer space would target hikers in the remote Russian wilderness. But such a UFO encounter would be consistent with other alleged alien sightings, which tend to strike isolated individuals and small groups in rural areas. Although there have been hundreds of alleged extraterrestrial sightings and abductions, there's no real consensus on what visitors from outer space want or what they employ to achieve their goals. Accounts have ranged from impossibly advanced technology to powers like telepathy and mind control. Mind control could compel nine hikers to abandon rationality and walk out into a freezing winter night without their coats, boots, or other warm clothes. Or perhaps the sound of a UFO struck the Dyatlov students with such terror they fled of their own accord. It's possible these alien visitors didn't even mean to kill the team. Perhaps they accidentally drove the hikers into the frigid night where they died of exposure. Or maybe these extraterrestrial visitors really were malicious and running a twisted experiment. They tortured the hikers to death one by one. That would explain why each body showed such a variety of injuries. They each died in a different scenario, tortured by a different alien technology. The extraterrestrial theory does explain the radiation in a way the Yeti theory doesn't. 
Several ufologists have theorized that alien craft might be powered by nuclear energy. If a few of the Dyatlov hikers stepped too close to the ship, they could have become irradiated. Or if the extraterrestrials were intentionally torturing or murdering the students, they might have used a nuclear-powered weapon. Or maybe all the aliens had to do was let the hikers board their craft. Outer space is full of cosmic radiation, radiation that doesn't reach the Earth because our atmosphere works as a shield. NASA reports that an unprotected trip to space is equivalent to receiving somewhere between 150 and 6,000 chest X-rays all at once. If these students were abducted, even for a brief period of time, their bodies could have absorbed this cosmic radiation. An alien visitor could also explain the state of the campsite. According to the case's lead investigator, Lev Ivanov, pine trees around the site were all burned at the top, like a ship had skimmed them. However, there's no mention of the damaged trees in his official reports. Lev claimed that Soviet politician A.P. Kirilenka forced him to remove any references to unknown flying objects or other strange phenomena. He had the option of obeying orders or being sent to the gulag. He chose to redact the information. But UFOs aren't the only possible explanation for oddly burnt trees. It could be caused by ball lightning, a little understood weather phenomenon that seems to be a giant ball of glowing electric energy. National Geographic says ball lightning usually appears during thunderstorms and can range in color from blue to orange to yellow and disappear within seconds. Researchers from China's Northwest Normal University observed ball lightning in 2012 while studying a thunderstorm. Just after a traditional lightning strike, a glowing electric ball rose from the ground and then darted across the sky for about 33 feet. Ball lightning would also explain the glowing orbs in the Dyatlov photographs, corroborated by Manzi eyewitnesses. In fact, the Dyatlov deaths don't have to be the result of supernatural attacks at all. The hikers may have fallen prey to the fury of Mother Earth, and lightning balls would just be one part of it. Coming up, the natural phenomena, including avalanches and rare wind patterns that could have killed the Dyatlov hikers. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1959, nine Soviet hikers were found dead under mysterious conditions in the Ural Mountains. 
their injuries were so severe and so utterly baffling, many believe they can only be explained by the supernatural. But theories about yetis and aliens ignore the awe-inspiring and at times inexplicable diversity and power of the natural world. Scientists are still unlocking the secrets of weather patterns and geographical structures and how they interact with each other. The Dyatlov hikers could easily have been victims of a rare but entirely natural phenomenon. The average temperature in early February in the Ural Mountains is below zero degrees Fahrenheit. At night, temperatures can drop to negative 22 degrees, or even colder. Even worse, the Dyatlov team was hiking through near whiteout conditions on a mountain with powerful winds. Winds strong enough to cause avalanches. While the hikers were preparing for bed, they may have heard or felt the rushing of snow. They knew they had only moments to escape, so they had to act fast. The group sliced through the tent and immediately fled, leaving behind all their life-saving equipment. But sadly, they didn't run quickly enough. The sheer force of a wall of roiling snow can break ribs and crush internal organs. This could easily account for the physical trauma on the Dyatlov hikers' bodies. And for the state of their tent. When investigators first uncovered it, they found the shelter collapsed under a mound of snow. However, it was a relatively small amount of snow, not the aftermath of an avalanche. Maybe the group had put it on top of the tent intentionally to prevent it from blowing away. Besides the collapsed tent with minimal snow cover, there were no telltale signs of an avalanche at the campsite. The tent poles were all intact. An avalanche would have snapped those poles like twigs. In addition, avalanches usually only occur on fairly steep slopes. But the Dyatlov hikers made camp on a fairly flat patch of ground and the hikers' diaries described only thin snow cover. An avalanche in those conditions would be a freak occurrence. But it wouldn't take a real avalanche to kill the hikers, merely the fear of one. Perhaps on a windy night, the gusts blew clods of snow onto the tent. The sleeping students heard it, assumed more snow was coming, and fled. Then, without their winter wear and other gear, they froze to death. This could be particularly likely if the hikers experienced a weather phenomenon known as a Carmen Vortex Street. According to NASA, a Carmen Vortex Street arises when winds are diverted around a blunt, high-profile area. The alternating direction of rotation in the air forms swirls in the clouds. Simply put, when a strong wind hits large, blunt objects like mountains, it splits into two streams that spin in opposite directions. These function like a pair of tornadoes. The whirlwinds can produce what is called infrasound, or a noise pitch too low to be heard by humans. When a person senses infrasound, the cilia, or tiny hairs in the ear, vibrate, 
just as they do with things in our normal hearing range. But since the infrasound is so low in pitch, the brain receives conflicting stimuli. The cilia says we hear something. The auditory nerve says we don't. The result is a feeling of anxiety, confusion, and fear. In essence, Carmen Vortex streets create terror waves. Not surprisingly, the area where the Dyatlov group was camping happened to have the perfect geographical conditions to produce Carmen Vortex streets. If a Carmen Vortex street hit the mountain near the students, they would have heard wind roaring like a freight train, then felt an irrational, instinctual fear thanks to the infrasound. The fast wind could have blizzarded snow onto the tent, enough that a rational person awoken by the noise would think avalanche and run. Once outside, the group might have seen a blast of ball lightning in the sky frying the trees, like nature itself was trying to destroy them. Whipped into a panicked frenzy, the hikers might have split up and scrambled in every direction, getting lost in the windy darkness and eventually freezing to death, matching the autopsy report. During the investigation, rescue teams noted that the snow at higher altitudes was pointed downward in the direction of the tent, as though winds had whipped it down the slope. But as compelling as the Carmen Vortex Street theory is, it can only explain how the students ended up outside the tent without their gear. It can't account for the state of the students' injuries. It's possible that a panicked run might lead some hikers to trip and injure themselves. But as we discussed last week, Ludmila Dubinina and Semyon Zolotarev were missing their eyes. Alexander Kolevatov's eyebrows had been ripped off so deeply, his skull was exposed. Rustem Slobodin's skull was fractured. These injuries couldn't have been self-inflicted, no matter how terrified the students were. And then there's the highly concentrated nuclear residue. Carmen Vortex streets are many things, but they're not radioactive. That leads us to suspect the students' deaths weren't natural at all. They had to have been attacked and exposed to radiation, perhaps as part of a Soviet nuclear experiment. At the height of the Cold War, the U.S. and the USSR were competing in a nuclear arms race. Each nation pushed to develop long-range missiles and establish dominance, or at least maintain a detente via mutually assured destruction. These experiments were top secret, often conducted in isolated areas to decrease the chances that a civilian might stumble upon a classified weapons test. But perhaps a group of lost hikers wandering far from their trail could have accidentally stumbled upon a nuclear test site. Maybe they didn't even realize what they'd found. They merely saw flashes of light in the sky as nuclear test missiles arced above the Earth. And foolishly, they snapped pictures. These were merely students. They didn't have political connections. They weren't spies. 
But in the eyes of the Soviet military, this was a team of outsiders who had entered a secured area and photographed sensitive military information. They had to be silenced. And it wasn't enough to kill the Dyatlov group. They had to be taught a lesson. The Soviet military tortured them, maybe experimented on them. They left nine bodies so gruesomely mangled, their cause of death baffled generations to come. Yuri Kunsevich, a leading researcher in the Dyatlov Pass incident, was 12 years old when the students died. He lived across from the Mikhailovsky Cemetery, where some of them were buried. He even attended a few of their funerals. Kunsevich explained, there were rumors flying all over the city that these students had wandered into some kind of tests or experiments. The coffins were open, and I could see that the skin on their faces was a weird color, the color of bricks. There was nothing in the newspapers, but everyone was talking about it. We thought it must be some kind of state secret. His theory was that the students had witnessed a military experiment, one that made letting them live a major liability. Soviet officials identified them, abducted them, and tortured them until they died. Then their corpses were flown back to the Ural Mountains by helicopter and posed to make it look as though they froze to death. To verify his theory, Kunsevich made annual expeditions to the Dyatlov Pass Memorial on Kolatsyakl. He hiked the Ural Mountains, following the Dyatlov team's exact itinerary each time. He collected portraits, journals, papers, and even the hiker's personal belongings, anything related to the infamous incident. This massive collection eventually piqued the interest of archaeologist and television personality Josh Gates. During an interview, Yuri showed Gates a large sheet of metal that was found not far from the campsite on Dyatlov Pass. It was too big and heavy to be hiking equipment. After consulting with experts, Yuri had concluded the metal was likely a piece of a fuel tank from a rocket. He gave Josh permission to send the piece to a lab to be tested. They determined that the material was an aluminum alloy used in missile construction. Experts even narrowed down what sort of vessel it likely came from. A UR-100, or a Soviet intercontinental ballistic missile. The problem is that the UR-100 wasn't developed until seven years after the group's demise. That said, it's possible the students interrupted a test for a very early model, or even a precursor to the UR-100 that used similar fuel tanks. And if the hikers struck camp too close to the missile test, or if a few of them split from the group to go foraging, they could have been irradiated. The American Academy of Dermatology states that red skin and rashes can occur with radiation burns. If the Dyatlov group were, in fact, exposed to high levels of nuclear energy, their skin could have turned red, as Yuri Kunsevich described. Radiation could even account for Alexander Kolevatov's pallor. 
Autopsy reports described him as gray-green with a tinge of purple. Patients undergoing radiation therapy have been known to experience greenish discoloration or to develop purple bruise-like spots. In order to confirm their nuclear test theory, Josh Gates and his team went to the Ural Mountains and took several tree core samples to be analyzed for radioactivity. The results suggested higher than normal amounts of radiation, but nothing significant enough to suggest a major nuclear incident. Which means that a test warhead couldn't possibly have exploded at Dyatlov Pass and killed the students. If it had, the subsequent cover-up would have been inhumanly efficient. So efficient, every tree's bark was scraped off without a sign. So efficient, no agent's footsteps were discovered on or around the campsite. It's hard to imagine even an elite military group could have been so thorough. And this leaves researchers like Josh Gates and Yuri Kuncevich back at square one. They can't explain the state of the hikers' irradiated bodies without nuclear weaponry. But the evidence doesn't line up with the nuclear weapons we know. Perhaps then, we have to look at a deadly radioactive device that seems to have come directly out of a sci-fi movie. Coming up, we explore whether the Soviet Union invented a death ray. Now the conclusion to the story. The death of the Dyatlov hikers in 1959 has long baffled investigators and history buffs alike. Many popular theories, like avalanches or wind phenomena, can't account for their strangest injuries, like the high levels of radiation on two bodies. In order to explain the most outlandish damage, we have to look to human invention and the possibility that the Soviet government turned a directed energy weapon on the students. It might sound like something out of a science fiction movie, but Nikola Tesla allegedly invented a ray gun capable of firing beams of electricity at the start of the 20th century. In 1937, he bragged that he would demonstrate the weapon's might, but he was fatally struck by a car before he could back up those claims. Assuming Tesla wasn't lying, it must have been possible to shoot directed energy from a weapon. If such a technology did exist, the Soviet government would have been highly motivated to develop and test it in 1959. And those officials turned their newly invented death ray on nine unsuspecting victims, the Dyatlov hikers, who merely found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's possible the government officials didn't mean to kill the group. They pointed their prototype ray gun at what they believed to be an uninhabited pass in the Ural Mountains. Then they turned it on. Only after the students had died did the government discover they'd killed nine civilians. In order to hide their complicity and prevent news of the classified weapon from getting out, Soviet officials scrambled to cover up the real cause of the Dyatlov hikers' deaths. 
A beam of deadly electric energy would explain the gruesome damage to the hikers, the car crash levels of trauma, and the radiation exposure. It also fits with investigator Lev Ivanov's observation that the treetops near the campsite were singed. In 1990, he published an article called The Enigma of the Fireballs, saying, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong, but completely unknown, at least to us, energy, were directing their firepower towards specific objects, in this case, people, acting selectively. But even the directed energy weapon theory leaves some questions. If this hypothetical gun used radioactive beams, it could explain why two hikers' bodies were irradiated, but doesn't account for how the other seven ended up free of nuclear particles. It also doesn't explain why the students ran from their tent that night without their gear. If the energy beam caused pain, it might have elicited a panicked reaction. But until we can determine a more specific theory about what sort of energy was employed, we can't realistically speculate on how it could have affected the hikers psychologically. That hasn't stopped researchers from trying to define the Soviet government's possible complicity. Author Alyeg Arkhipov was friends with Lev Ivanov, the lead investigator in the Dyatlov case. Before his passing, Lev gifted Alyeg with some personal documents, including two papers whose authenticity has been verified with technical and handwriting analysis. One report stated that the prosecutor's office opened a case file on the Dyatlov group deaths on February 6, 1959, 20 days before the hiker's abandoned campsite was found, and only five days after their demise. The other was a handwritten letter dated February 15, 1959, 11 days before the discovery of the tent. The letter states that the prosecutor's office is not only aware of the hikers' deaths, but they are on their way to investigate. This means that while most people were still under the impression that the group was on their expedition, the prosecutor's office knew they were dead. This begs the question, how could they have known about the fatalities three weeks before the official investigation began? And why would they have withheld this information from the students' families? Perhaps because they were complicit in the deaths and needed to execute a cover-up before a more public investigation began. Even with all of this suspicious evidence, official documents maintain that there were no military personnel in the Ural Mountains during the Dyatlov group's hike. But notably, the Russian government may not be quite as eager to solve the mystery as we are. On February 1st, 2019, they reopened the case. However, they are only investigating three possible theories, all of which are extreme weather-related. Spokesman for the Prosecutor General, Alexander Koryene, stated, Crime is out of the question. There is not a single proof. It was either an avalanche, a falling slab of hard-packed snow, 
or a hurricane. Until they release their findings, and maybe even then, anything we could say about the Dyatlov incident is just speculation. But based on the evidence we've reviewed, I'm inclined to think the Dyatlov students were victims of a Soviet weapons experiment. The gruesome injuries, the presence of radiation, and the strange inconsistencies in the police investigation all suggest a violent death and government cover-up. I agree. We still can't explain everything, like how the Soviet military could murder the hikers without leaving footprints. But this explanation fits the evidence more than any other. And perhaps some later finding will be the final puzzle piece that ties everything together. One day we may finally conclude this chapter in history and put to rest the mystery. In the meantime, we'll just have to be vigilant against sudden, violent death from above. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with a brand new episode. For more information on the Dyatlov Pass incident, among the many sources we used, we found Mountain of the Dead, the Dyatlov Pass incident by Keith McCloskey, www.dyatlovpass.com, and the Discovery Channel documentary series Expedition Unknown, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Keith Horvath, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.